Every day I pray speak three specific requests for our church. I pray for God to make us into a, a gospel mission, a gospel mission who gives and goes, sends and supports to ensure the gospel is fully proclaimed in Guyman, Goodwill, Hooker, Texoma, and to the ends of the earth. I pray for God to make us awed by Him, to make us a people who are awed by His greatness, His goodness, His worthiness, His glory, and let this all be seen in everything we do. And then I pray He would make us a beacon of hope. Now, my prayer for about being a beacon of hope is twofold. First, I want us to have a culture of hope. A culture of hope is when each one of us who calls this their church home comes to church with a sense of hope, anticipation, and expectation what Jesus is going to do in us and through us and for us as we gather together. And secondly, for the people of our community to know this is a place where they can find hope, help, and healing through Jesus Christ. Now, the key to hope in all its forms is through Jesus. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is what gives us our hope. Jesus has always, it's always been Jesus that's meant to be the source of our hope and the one who gives us hope. We're going to see this tonight from the book of Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, if you don't have it turned there already, turn to Isaiah 9. We're going to start in verse 1. Uh, it's page 523 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Isaiah 9, 1 says, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he will make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You will multiply the nation. You will increase their joy. They will rejoice in your presence as with the joy of harvest, as people rejoice when they divide the spoils. You will break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor is the battle of Midian. For every boot of the marching warrior and the roar of battle, the cloak rolled in blood, will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. The title of the message tonight is Jesus, our hope. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We thank you, Lord, that, Father, because of Jesus, we can have hope through Jesus we can have hope. We live in a world, Lord, where hopelessness abounds. Father, people are despairing. People are, are cynical. And through Jesus, we can be delivered from both of those. And we can live in hope and we can pray in hope and we can think in hope and we can speak in hope because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Father, make us those people. Let this be a beacon of hope in our community that we as, as individuals who call this the church home, that, Lord, we would be a hopeful people and that the hope would spread throughout the community so that anyone in this area would know that there is hope for Christ to be found at Northridge Free Will Baptist Church. Father, fill me tonight with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech, that I would speak your words and your ways for your glory. Have your way in our hearts. Strengthen us. Challenge us, encourage us, and make us 
more of who you want us to be, we ask in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Now, Isaiah 9 is a continuation of the prophecy began in Isaiah 7 and it continued in Isaiah 8. Now, Isaiah 8, if you remember, it ended with a note of despair. The people will be roaming the earth with distress and darkness and anguish. They'll be driven away into darkness. They are enraged and they curse God, their king. Right? The nation had turned from God. They were listening to occultic wisdom and not God's word. They had rejected God's plan uh, for what they ought to do at the attack that was coming. And instead they had made their own plan and trusted in it. So Isaiah 8 ends with that picture of gloom and despair and the people being angry and cursing as they roam over the earth because they have been completely conquered by Assyria as judgment from God. Despite the judgment from God, though, Isaiah sees a day coming when God would lift the people out of darkness and despair. And Isaiah shares this with the people as a shining message of, of hope in an agonizing despair of the world. God would do all of these things we're going to look at in this chapter. But ultimately what He would do is He would do it by sending His Messiah into the world. The thrust of this passage is that all of these things would be done and would be fulfilled through the coming of Jesus Christ. The, the main idea for us is Jesus is our hope and Jesus gives us hope. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago when we looked at this part of this chapter, we saw there are four ways Jesus is our hope and four ways Jesus gives us hope. One is Jesus gives us light for darkness. Right? Verse 1 is they're in dark, but things are going to change. The people who sit in darkness are going to see a great light. This is Jesus being the one who comes unto us, comes into the world, the people trapped in darkness, and He brings light to places that were once bound up in darkness. Jesus gives us joy for misery. In verse 3, that Jesus, when He came, He would multiply the nation, He would increase their joy, and it would be the joy of harvest and the joy of winning in battles. Jesus would give them joy, give people joy for their misery. Jesus gives peace for conflict. Verse 4 and 5, Talk about a, a kind of peace that Jesus would give. Verse 4 speaks of a, a story from Joshua or Judges chapter 7 where Gideon defeats an army, a much larger army with 300 men. God whittled their army down so that they would know it was God who gave the victory. And the point is, God will give you victory. The size of the nation, the size of things doesn't matter. God will give you victory. And it will be a victory so, so complete, so uh, all the way done, that the, that the stuff of battle, the roar of battle would not be heard. The cloaks rolled in blood and all of the weapons, things like that, would be for burning and for fuel for the fire. And then the last way Jesus gives us hope is Jesus gives us Himself in verse sixes, verses 6 and 7. Now verse 6 is likely the most familiar passage, the verse in the entire chapter. It is one of the more recognizable Christmas passage. And it teaches us, much about the greatness of Jesus and why we have hope in Him and from Him. Now, it begins, the description of Jesus begins by telling us that a child will be born to us. Right? Reminding us Jesus' coming was for our benefit. Jesus was born to give us light and darkness, to give us joy and misery, and to give us peace in conflict, and ultimately to give Himself for us. Not only was Jesus a child born to us and for us, 
He would be a son who was given. Now, both descriptions as the child who was born and the son who was given seem to be significant descriptions of Jesus as the Messiah. They seem to picture both the humanity and the deity of Jesus as a child born. Jesus would be human, but as a son given, Jesus would come from the Father. It's reminiscent of John 3.16, for God so loved the world, He gave His Son. It is the ultimate fulfillment of what is promised in Isaiah 7.14. The Lord Himself will give you a son, the virgin will conceive, give birth to a son, she will name him Emmanuel. All of this was fulfilled at the birth of Jesus. Now with this, Jesus has given Four famous names that are descriptive of who he is and what he does. And they further reveal the hope that we have in Jesus. And and this is what we're going to talk about tonight. So all of this has been building to who Jesus is. His name would be called first Wonderful Counselor. Jesus is the Wonderful Counselor. Now, this is a great passage. That's a great title for Jesus. Because people seek counselors because they're in pain or because they have a problem. And when people are in pain, they need comfort. And when people have a problem, they need guidance. When Jesus came to earth, he experienced the pain and the problems just like we do. The main difference between Jesus and us is his response to the pain, the problems and the temptations. None of the things Jesus faced ever led him to make a wrong decision. He never took a wrong action. He never even had a wrong attitude or said a wrong word. And this enables him to be our wonderful counselor in our pain and our problems because he can he can relate to what we're going through. But he can also guide us along the best path for our life. This is a promise in the New Testament. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who has been tempted in all things just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let's approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace for help in our time of need. That to sympathize with our weaknesses means Jesus feels our pain and knows our problems because he experienced what we experienced. And, and again, he did it without sin. He never did it wrong. Now, to me, the thing this always brings to mind is when we go to Jesus for guidance, for counsel, for any of these things, he always has the right answer. You know, just because somebody has had an experience like ours doesn't mean they can give us good advice. Many people have the same experiences we do. They have the same pains we do. They have the same problems we do. And they repeatedly make very poor decisions in those moments. Well, we don't need guidance from them. We don't want what they're doing because what they're doing is wrong. The guidance we want is someone who can show us, here's the problem, here's the solution. Here are the steps to take. Here's what you need to do that is the right thing. And so knowing this about Jesus, that he sympathizes with our weakness, that he did it all in the right way at the right time with the right attitude and the right words, it motivates us to boldly approach the throne of grace, knowing that in that time we will receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. He becomes our wonderful counselor in that moment. 
Jesus is our hope and Jesus gives us our gives us hope because he is our wonderful counselor. Jesus is also the mighty God, it says. Now, solidifying the fact the Messiah would be God and not merely just a man. Here we are explicitly told he would be the mighty God, not just a God, but the mighty God. Now, the Hebrew word for mighty is gives us an interesting picture. It carries with it the idea of being a hero or a champion. It's similar to what you see in the book of Judges when God would raise up a judge. Now, when we see in Judges that God would raise up a judge, often, if you're like me, our minds go to the idea that they would be like a judge in a courtroom who would choose between right and wrong. And sometimes they did that. But what was the main job of the judges God raised up? They were champions, weren't they? They were raised up to throw off the oppression and lead the people into the freedom God intended for them to live. This is what Jesus is. Jesus is the mighty God who came to be our champion and defeat all our enemies. What enemies? Well, God's word gives us several. Jesus defeated the enemy of death. Now, while death clearly is still a thing in this life, Death does not have the ultimate victory for a disciple of Jesus. Death has been defeated because the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus. The death has been defeated because for those of us who have repented of our sins and believed in Jesus, death isn't the end. Death sends us into the presence of our Savior so that we can say, like the Apostle Paul, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Death is a victory Four disciples of Jesus. And while death is still a thing in this life, there is coming a day, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, when death will be fully and finally be defeated. There will be no more suffering, no more parting, no more death. Jesus is the mighty God who has defeated death on our behalf, defeated death for us. Jesus is the mighty God who has defeated the enemy, Satan. Satan is the great enemy of our souls who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And although he roams around the earth like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, Jesus has defeated him. In fact, Colossians passage reference there says Jesus has defeated him so thoroughly that he made a spectacle of him. Right? It was like, it it pictures just a humiliating defeat. Jesus didn't barely win in overtime. Jesus thoroughly trounced Satan in his death on the cross and his resurrection afterward. Though Satan may roam and roar, and though he may do all manner of things in this life, he has no rights in the life of a disciple of Jesus. Jesus said of himself, Satan has nothing in me. Because we are in Christ and Christ is in us, Satan has nothing in us. Jesus is the mighty God who has defeated Satan. This is why Jesus gives us hope and why he is our hope. Jesus has defeated the enemy of sin. One of the most important truths for a disciple of Jesus to understand and embrace is we are no longer slaves to our sinful nature. In fact, Romans chapter 8 tells us, That we have no obligation to do the desires of our sinful nature. Now think about that. 
Romans 6 talks about being dead to sin and alive in Christ. Romans 8 says that we have no obligation to do what our sinful nature desires. Galatians 5 says we can walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Over and over and over again, God's Word tells us as disciples of Jesus... We do not have to live in sin. We are not enslaved by our sinful nature. We don't have to give in to it anymore. And I think this is a huge thing for us to want understand that when it says God always makes a way out of every temptation, it literally means God makes a way out of every temptation. When it says we have no obligation to do what our sinful desire wants us to do. We literally have no obligation. We can, as disciples of Jesus, choose to do what's right every time. So we must understand it, but then believe it's real. That's really what it means. It's not a picture of, boy, wouldn't it be great. It's the reality of how life can be and should be for us. Now, yes, our sinful nature still exists. Yes, it still pulls at us. But no. We no longer have to give into the impulses of our sinful desires. Jesus condemned sin on the cross and, it, and He made it possible for us to live in victory over sin. Jesus is our hope and Jesus gives, our, gives us hope because He is the mighty God who defeated sin. Jesus defeated bondage. Now bondage is essentially anything that enslaves us. Think about this in terms of strongholds like in 2 Corinthians 10. A stronghold is a mindset impregnated with hopelessness, accepting as unchanging what is clearly against God's will. A stronghold is a mindset impregnated with hopelessness, accepting as unchanging what is clearly against God's will. Is there something in your life that is clearly against God's will in any aspect, in any part, in any of your life. Okay? Do you have a hopeless mindset about that? This is just the way things are. I could never be any better. There's no way I could overcome this. This is just who I am. If you answered yes to both of those questions, then you have a stronghold you are in bondage to. Jesus can and will free us from the bondage. Jesus' disciples are free and whom the Son sets free are free indeed. Through Christ we have, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Jesus has defeated every stronghold. Jesus has overcome every form of bondage. So the disciple of Jesus can live in freedom from any stronghold and any bondage in the world. Jesus is our hope and Jesus gives us hope because he is the mighty God who has defeated bondage. And Jesus has defeated the enemy of condemnation. Disciples of Jesus know they have sinned against God. Every disciple of Jesus who is a disciple of Jesus is aware of that. 
Someone says they have not sinned. The Bible says the truth is not in them. So someone who doesn't know they've sinned against a holy God, they're not really saved to begin with according to God's word. But the disciple of Jesus knows, I have sinned against a holy God. But that knowledge does not cause the disciple of Jesus to be beat down and oppressed and held down and kept from living in the freedom Christ intends for us to have. Not not because we say our sin wasn't that big of a deal. It, it was. Not because we say, well, I'm, I've done a lot better since those days. I'm, I'm better now. Not because of that. We're free from condemnation because of what Christ Jesus has done for us. Our, our sin in the past, even our sin in the present, does not beat us down and hold us down because Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for our sin. On the cross, He absorbed all of God's wrath against all of our sin. And He has freed us, forever freed us from condemnation. Jesus is our hope and Jesus gives us hope because He has forever freed us from condemnation. The child of God, the disciple of Christ, will never face the condemnation of the Lord God Almighty. Jesus is our hope and Jesus gives us hope because He is the mighty God who has defeated all of our enemies. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Jesus is the mighty God. Jesus is also the everlasting or the eternal Father. While Jesus is eternal, that doesn't seem to be the main thrust of what's in view here. Rather, the emphasis is on Jesus has this everlasting love for us that a father has for his children. Now, part of what this means is Jesus will care for us. He will comfort us. He will lead us. He will teach us. He will protect us. And He will correct us. But it also means everything He does in us and through us and for us always flows out of His everlasting love for us. Again, let me say that again because that's really important. Everything Jesus does in us and through us and for us always flows out of His everlasting love for us. But maybe best of all, Jesus being the everlasting Father means nothing can separate us from His love. This is, again, a, a wonderful passage, a wonderful truth to know. The Apostle Paul says, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, let me just take a, a quick minute to go over what Paul says in this list are things that cannot separate us from the love of God. Death. Death doesn't separate us from the love of God, as we've already said. For the disciple of Jesus, death ushers us into the presence of Jesus, and it's a win. In that moment, we'll experience His love in ways we have only dreamed about here in this life. Life cannot separate us from the love of God. Nothing in this life can separate us from the love of God. No hardship, no person, no circumstance, no nothing can ever separate us from the love of God that is revealed in 
Jesus Christ. Evil spiritual powers cannot separate us from the love of God. It says angels nor principalities. Now, I can't imagine that angels, good angels, God's angels, would want to separate us from God's love. So my belief is that the angels and principalities, of course, you know from Ephesians, speaks of demonic powers. So I think both of that speaks of evil spiritual powers. And we know from plenty of places that we are involved in very real spiritual warfare. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We wrestle against all of these things, and they, they are on the attack. We are a huge part of their focus in what they're trying to do in the world. They, they hate us because we are made in the image of God. They hate us because we are redeemed by the blood of Christ. They hate us because as we share the gospel and as we live out God's will and God's way, we advance the kingdom of God and we push back the kingdom of darkness. They hate all of those things about us. And so they, they greatly desire our destruction. And they can attack and they can do their worst. But in the end, what they're going to find out is what we've already talked about. Jesus made a spectacle of them through his victory on the cross. They have been defeated just as surely as Satan has. And they cannot, no matter what they do, separate us from the love of God. They have no power over us and could not possibly separate us from God's love. The tide of time cannot separate us from God's love, nor things present, nor things to come. Now, one thing I like about this, and this is just kind of a throw-out point, he doesn't even mention the past. Right? Paul is so convinced that the past, that we all know the past has been taken care of by Christ, that we wouldn't even consider that the past could take us out of God's love, that what we did back then keeps us from being fully loved by God. He doesn't even feel the need to mention that as something that could hinder us because it is so fully paid for. But what he does want us to know is that nothing right now, nor anything to come, can separate us from the love of God. So no matter what's going on in our lives right now at the moment, whatever it is, good, bad, indifferent, struggles we face, pains we have, anything going on, that is not going to separate us from the love of God. But not only is what's going on now not going to separate us from the love of God, we don't know what the future holds, but God does. Whatever the future holds for us as individuals, as a church, as a community, none of that is ever going to separate us from the love of God. The tide of time cannot separate us from the love of God. Nothing that happens now, nothing that will happen in the future can take us out of God's love. No created thing, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. Height and depth have had some various interpretations through the years as to what they mean. The, the one that makes the most sense to me is height refers to like the height of heavens and the depths would be like the depths of the sea nor any other created thing. Those seem to be, that all seems to go together. So what he's talking about is nothing in all of the full expanse of creation can separate us from God's love. So no matter what the world does or what the world is or what's going on in the world, it never separates us from the love of God. Instead, whatever happens will simply serve to prove that even if our heart and flesh may fail us, God is our strength and our portion forever. Psalm 73, 26. Nothing can ever separate us from the love of God that has been revealed for us in Christ Jesus. 
Now, again, Jesus is the key to this. We have access to this love through Jesus. We experience this love through Jesus. If Jesus is our Savior, God's love for us will never change. Jesus and what He has done for us on the cross, and not circumstances, not the spiritual battles we face, not anything happening in our life or in the world, or anything in all of creation, dictates or reveals God's love for us. The cross of Jesus reveals God's love for us. And it guarantees God's love for us will not change. Jesus is our hope. And Jesus gives us hope. Because He loves us with the everlasting love of an eternal Father. And then finally, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He is the wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Eternal Father, and the Prince of Peace. Now, Peace, in God's Word, as I was studying, seems to have three aspects as it relates to Jesus being the Prince of Peace. Now, notice earlier in verse 6, it talks about the government resting on His shoulders. Uh, verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of His government, nor peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it, to uphold it, justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. There'd be no end to the increase of his government nor the peace it brings. Now, the government of Jesus and the kingdom of God are essentially the same thing. The kingdom began to usher into the world, come into the world at his birth, and it has been expanding ever since. And it will continue to expand until the entire world is brought under the reign and the rule of Jesus. Right? So eventually, all of the earth, all the kingdoms and nations and peoples and languages of the earth will be kingdoms of our God and of His Christ, is what God's Word tells us. And on that day, when that happens, there will be peace. Wars and strife will cease. The prophecy in Micah 4.3 is that He will judge between many peoples and render decisions Render decisions for mighty distant nations, and they will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. The kingdom of God will eventually accomplish this upon the earth, and Jesus, as the mighty God and the Prince of Peace, ensures that it will happen. Jesus is our hope, and He gives us hope because He is the Prince of Peace who will usher in true and lasting peace in the world. Secondly, there's also the peace that He brings within us. God's Word describes some people as being like the troubled sea when it cannot rest. Isaiah 57, 20 and 21. Those who are like this are always tossed about. They're always stirred up. They're always uneasy. They're always anxious. They're always fearful. They're always angry. And God's Word specifically says these people have no peace. But Jesus can bring peace into a life stirred up with uneasiness and anxiety and fear and anger and anything else. You've got to be kidding. Peace I leave you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor fearful. The peace we have in Jesus is a peace given to us from Jesus. 
since this is the case, the world cannot steal it because it is secured by Jesus Himself in our hearts. Now, I don't know about you. I know Isaiah 57 talks about the wicked being stirred up that way. But I don't, I don't, I'm not wicked, but I can feel stirred up that way sometimes. I know lots of people who can feel stirred up that way sometimes. Jesus is the Prince of Peace who can take all of that stirring up away and, and bring calm waters where the tossing and turning typically is. Jesus is our hope and Jesus gives us hope because He is the Prince of Peace who can bring peace into the turmoil of our lives. Finally, Jesus brings us peace and He brings us peace with God. Before sin entered the world, mankind walked with God in near perfect communion. Sin changed everything. At its core, sin is rebellion against the rule and the reign of God in our lives. I mean, that is the essence. That is the core of what sin is. Sin is essentially shaking our fist at God and saying, you will not rule over me. I will think what I want to think. I will say what I want to say. I will do what I want to do. And nothing anyone, not even you, God, says will change my view. And what this does is this brings hostility between us and God. Right? It's not that God is hostile at us. It's that we are acting in hostility toward God through our rebellion, through our refusal to submit to His kingship. But Jesus came to end these hostilities. Through Him, to reconcile all things to Himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. And although you were previously alienated and hostile in your attitude, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His body of flesh through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Every one of us at one point in our life were alienated and enemies of God because of our rebellious thoughts and our wicked works. But Jesus came to bring peace between us and God and to reconcile us to God, to bring us back to God, to the relationship we were supposed to have. Jesus' death on the cross paid the penalty our sins deserve and makes it possible for us to go from the enemies of God to His dearly loved children. Jesus is the only one who can do this. There is... Literally nothing else in all the earth that can bring peace between a hostile sinner and a loving God other than the death of Jesus on the cross. That's it. Not good works, not turning over a new leaf, not saying nice things about God, only coming to God through faith in Jesus. Jesus is our hope and Jesus gives us hope because He is the Prince of Peace. Through His death and resurrection, He has made Peace between us and God. Now, one last thing I want to point out is how we should respond to the fact Jesus is our hope and He gives us hope. Now, often when we look at this passage, we, we talk about it in terms of Jesus' name above all names. There's a song about it. And it's based often upon this passage. But there's another passage in the New Testament that talks about this. For this reason... God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, Jesus being our hope, who gives us hope, should lead us to fall before Him in awe and worship. We should bow before Him and confess Jesus is Lord, not as a, a saying, but as the, the basically the, the statement of our lives. Jesus is Lord, not Lord out there, but Lord in here over all of me. Jesus is worthy of our worship. Jesus is worthy of this confession. Jesus is worthy because He has the name that is above all names. He is our hope and He gives us hope. But notice what this passage tells us. This passage doesn't tell us we should bow to Jesus. Every person should bow and call Jesus Lord. It says every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. Every person who has ever lived or ever will live will one day bow the knee to Jesus. And every person who has ever lived or ever will live, will one day confess Jesus is Lord. The question is not will people do this. The question is when will people do this. Will we do it now? We recognize His greatness. We recognize how wonderful and how mighty and how loving and the peace He gives and how worthy He is. And so we bow before Him and we surrender to Him as Lord. Will we do it now because He is worthy of our worship? He is worthy of our lives. Or will we do it at the end of all things when we stand before the great white throne of judgment? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. Those who live their lives now rebelling against Jesus, saying He has no authority over me, I will, I will do what I will. And they reject His salvation, they reject His Lordship, they rebel against it. They will still one day bow the knee and confess Jesus as Lord. But it will not be the willing bowing, filled with grateful worship of one who has answered Jesus' invitation and received Jesus' salvation. This will be the unwilling bowing and fear-filled confession of a rebel who is now standing before the King in judgment. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will bow. Confess. So with two things, I'll, I'll close. One, let's make sure we bow the knee now. Let's make sure we make this confession now. But if we have, let's realize people around us haven't. 
we can clearly see people around us who have not bowed the knee and who live as though Jesus is not Lord. We must do everything we can to convince them to bow the knee now, to confess Jesus as Lord now. Because when they get here and they do it, then it will be too late. People say, well, if God's real and I stand before Him in judgment, I've got some questions for Him. I'm going to ask Him about this and about that. Who does He think He is? That is just pure, ignorant arrogance on display. On the day when people stand before the great white throne of judgment, and they see the great King on that throne of judgment, they will not arrogantly shout insults at Jesus. They will not demand answers from Him. They will realize the folly of their lives. And they will bow the knee. And they will confess. And then they will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. We can't make people bow the knee. That was one of the errors of the Roman Catholic Church. They wanted to make people bow the knee and confess Jesus as Lord. But this is not something that can be commanded by us or made. We cannot force people to do it. They must do it on their own. But what we can do is tell them about the wonderful counselor we have. About the mighty God we have about the eternal Father we have, the Prince of Peace we have. We can tell them how good it has been for us since we bowed the knee and confessed Jesus as Lord. And we can plead with them to do the same. And they will have to make their own decision. But if they have to wait, if they wait till that day to bow, that day to confess, let's be sure it's not because we never urge them to make that decision sooner. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise, worthy of our devotion. Father, we are thankful for Jesus, our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, and our Prince of Peace. Lord, we, we bow the knee. We confess Jesus as Lord. Jesus is wonderful. Jesus is worthy. Give us opportunities to tell others this week. Let us take them and let us see them bow the knee and confess Jesus as Lord. We ask in His name. Amen.